Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close... You can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give them the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like them. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. All right, Thomas McGuane. Are you okay talking about really old work of yours? Oh, sure. I don't care what we talk about. Because when you when you look at all the th- things you've done and written, um, where does Rancho De- where does the movie Rancho Deluxe? Where do you stack that into? <laughs> you know, if you were gonna li- if you were gonna have a tombstone and they were gonna list your accomplishments on your tombstone, right? Would I put Rancho Deluxe? Would in? Rancho Deluxe make the tombstone? I've already written the text for the tombstone. It says, it's been a great life. I wish I understood it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Rancho Deluxe was a happy accident in a way. I mean, um, it's never stopped playing, as I'm sure you're aware. But basically what happened was uh, uh, a producer uh, bought 92 in the shade. And they couldn't get the the, uh, financing together in a short term. And they said, do you have, because they didn't have a script. I said, they said, do you have anything ready to go? And I said, yes, I do. I have a screenplay ready to go. That wasn't true. I hadn't written anything. And he said, well, I'll be, <laughs> I'll be back in two weeks. Uh, and let's see what you've got. So I went into my son's bedroom. He was about 10 years old at the time. And in two weeks, I had 
written Rancho Deluxe, and he flew in from L.A., and I said, here it is. And he went back to my son's bedroom, and he came back out, and he said, this is great. We're going to make it. So it was a lucky thing from then on, you know. And then there were people who just were amused by the idea. Jeff Bridges was early in his career. Sam Watterson was early in his career. My brother-in-law did the music. Uh, other people came up to hang out, like Warren Oates and Harry Dean Stanton and other people. We, we just had a lot of fun making that movie, so I'm glad it found an audience. Oh, I recommend it to people all the time, but I find that when I show it to people, they need to have... They yeah. need to have a little bit of pre-awareness yeah. of the the West yeah. and some of the conflicts and different personality right. archetypes from the West, well, or else they wind up being a little baffled by it. Well, that's good. It's a litmus test. Yeah, that's good because that was actually <laughs> that was actually the impulse to write it. Write it because I mean, we were. I was under. When I got here in the 60s, I was aware there was this kind of official version of Montana life, which was the same as the uh, Chamber of Commerce version. It was all big sky, um, uh, cowboys and Indian stuff. And, I, and everybody I knew was, you know, poaching, selling, selling uh, the ill-gotten gains to buy dope and motorcycle parts, you know. I thought, well, this is what I know to be going on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Why doesn't anybody talk about this? So that's what I want. That's kind of what I wanted to do. I haven't quite got over that actually. I'm still very conscious uh, of the tension between what I know as as a day to day person in Montana for 52 years with the official version of life in Montana. And I've always felt that tension, and I and I like to use that uh, to think up things I want to write about. Uh, You mentioned that your brother in law does the music mm-hmm. and your brother-in-law is jimmy buffett right and he has a cameo by the way he shook, he had a concert yesterday in michigan oh he did Forty-two thousand people came wow by the way i have to interject that i just came back from a, a, a book festival in france do you know how many readers came <laughs> Sixty-one thousand. wow they were running trains from paris to saint-malo and Brittany. Just to carry readers, could that happen here? No, no. No. That's yeah. That's really amazing. And, and in France, like I know that uh, your your late friend Jim Harrison would talk about how well his books would do in France. Do yeah. you have a lot of readers? Do you get a lot of readers yeah. in France? I more, we, he and I both have more French readers than American readers. Really? Yeah. In fact, one of the publishers over there said, "You literary people." would be di- out of business if it weren't for France. It's semi-true. Harrison w- was there like 10 times a year. He was yeah, there. he's always and being he, honored he, over there. And- yeah, and he had a huge following there. Um, he was really kind of a rock star over there. It's odd who they settle on. Not odd in Jim's case, but like Paul Oster, who's a sort of an obs- uh, not easily absorbed writer. He's another rock star in France. This um, I'm going to come back to my question I didn't get to my thing yet about Rancho Deluxe, but what, cause I, you know, I, as I talk about often, I grew up in Michigan right? and we would, and you, for us, like kids that like to, that, that like to read. Right. Um, and like to fish and hunt. Like we all idolized you guys. And we would think of you as like nuts on a dog, you and Jim Harrison. Right. Um, where people would be like, who do you like to read? And people yeah. would say McGuane and Harrison. 
Has that? <laughs> do, do you feel that that's just a thing that comes from like a Michigan perspective where you guys are so lumped in because you both yeah. kind of went to the same school there? Yeah. Or, do you, or has that been your whole life? Have you found that people will roll you guys together, even though your writing is so different? Yeah. No, that's true. Uh, I mean, it's confusing, I think. You know, I mean, Jim and I were pals from the time we were just out of our teens, really. You know, I mean, we just kind of grew up in some ways together, you know, pretty closely linked. We wrote letters each, at least every week each other for almost a half century. I mean, we did only stopped writing letters when he died. I mean, we did that. So we were mentally really involved in each other's uh, consciousness, you know, to the, to the degree that since Jim died, I've got this kind of, uh, it's like a blank channel on my phone or some blank thing, you know, I don't know what to do with it, you know, because I filled it up for two thirds of my life with these dialogue that we, we had going. Jim was, uh, Jim and I were very interested in the same things, uh, other than lit literature. We both hunted and fished constantly, or just found some reason to be outdoors. He was a bird watcher, and we we wanted we didn't want to be in the house. Is the bottom line, and um, he was a terrible hunter, terrible hunter and fisherman. I mean, it was all <laughs> in his head, really. Uh, I remember one time we were, you know, he couldn't hit. He couldn't hit up the barn with a bull fiddle, you know. I mean, he, but if you ever shot something, he'd run out and grab it and say, it's mine. Oh, yeah? <laughs> and one time, one time, I said, now, Jim, I said, I just shot that grouse. You know it's not yours. He said, I know it is mine. And I said, well, okay, but uh, how, how could we ever prove this? I said, you did let off your gun, but I know you can't hit anything. He said, we're going to get a cheese grater. And we're going to shred this bird and count pellets. And he said, You're, what are you shooting? I said, I don't know. I'm shooting eight, seven and a half. He said, well, I'm shooting eights. And we'll be able to tell after we shred this bird. <laughs> so, Did you ever find out? <laughs> no, we didn't. No. <laughs> I, I think as usual, I just handed the bird over. <laughs> but he, he had this uh, tremendous responsiveness to anything in the natural world. I mean, um, he just ignited, you know, in the presence of any little thing that was going on. Some, you, any, felt, you felt that in a, like he did in a genuine way, not just in a literary way. No, it was very genuine. Like if he wasn't a writer, he would still be doing that same thing. Yeah, right. I think that's right. Yeah. That's where it hard, a little bit hard to understand him as I get older and older, is it's hard to... Um, he kind of, in some ways, like set the stage a little bit for uh, uh, kind of the literary madman, you know? Right. Like he kind of created, in some ways, he kind of created what we expected to see there. Yeah. And it was always hard to tell, like as I get older, it's hard to tell to to what degree that that he did it because he got away with it. You know, uh, like he did it because that became expected of him, you know? Yeah, there's a lot of that. The there's wine of... and the food and... Yeah. The women, you know. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there was a lot of that going on in that era. You know, Hunter Thompson was very much like, you know, my son worked as Hunter Thompson's bodyguard briefly. Oh, yeah. And, and I was around Hunter a lot, too. And, you you know, you to spend a, a day with Hunter doing stuff or being around would be very normal. But the minute there was an audience around, everything changed, you know, for the worse. Yeah. Uh, 
Jim was very audience aware too, I think. Is that right? Yeah. But um he was also, you know, he was he was uh, very genuine in, in, in other ways. And and the other thing about Harrison, he was not often recognized as he was unbelievably intelligent. Um you could give him a, a, a tough European 500-page novel, and you read it overnight and remember everything in it. Um, so that was uh, that was um, probably the first thing I would think about uh, with Jim. But he was also pretty curiously self-propelled. I mean, he he would come out to Montana for uh, long, long stretches. Nobody ever knew he had a wife and children. <laughs> You know, I mean, he just did what he felt like doing. He was re- remarkably uh, ind- either independent or unilateral, however you want to look yeah. at it. Yeah. I want to come back to my question about Rancho Deluxe. I was a, I worked as an arborist right, for several years in western Montana. And I met a guy, um, the last name of Waglenda, and he had been brought up on a ranch in the Bridger Range. And he one day was telling me, he said, he was reminiscing about being a kid. And he talked about how they were filming a movie once. And his dad sold someone. I can't remember if it was a bull or a steer. Oh, yeah. I know that. Yeah. I know that bull. And, uh, and they, I know they, that family. Yeah, right. It was they, a big Charolais. Yeah, it was great. great. That was a great. That sh- bull was a great actor. <laughs> You know, we, we, put him, we put him in a, a motel room. I don't know how we did that. Oh, yeah. no. Was that the one? Because I yeah. thought the one he was talking about. Yeah, you're oh, right. So he's talking about the one we shot. <laughs> Maybe it was the one. I just can't remember. But he had no idea about the movie. <laughs> he just knew a story about some people making a movie. Maybe it was the one that went into the hotel room. Yeah. And then, then uh, you know, we thought, well, we've got him in the hotel room. What are we going to do with him? And then he... Then he charged the TV set and explode. The TV exploded. <laughs> Perfect for the film. No, completely unplanned. Yeah, and then the one, the one that gets shot with the with the one gets. It's so obvious. Like if you've seen animals, mm-hmm. you know, you know when you're seeing something real. It's like Apocalypse yeah. Now. I made the mistake recently of showing my nine year old the end sequence of Apocalypse Now, right? Where they kill a water buffalo, right? And I didn't remember it the way that it looked, and it traumatized him a little bit. Yeah, I bet. But watching in Rancho Deluxe, like that was a time, like that stuff doesn't wouldn't really happen anymore. No, that they would take a Sharps Buffalo rifle and shoot shoot something for the camera. Yeah. Well, we had stuff like that happen. I'm glad it doesn't happen anymore. I mean, uh, we had some catastrophes when we were making Missouri breaks with uh, horses. Um. We wanted horses. We wanted horses to swim the big horn, and they got tangled up with old barbed wire on the bottom and oh, really? horrible stuff. Yeah, yeah, and that was your film with uh, Marlon Brando, right? Did you work on that one? Yeah, I lived with Brando for a while. Uh, that's a huge hit in in uh, Europe. The Missouri Breaks. Yeah, it's it's widely considered the best modern western. Really? They're just mad about it. I that love was, it. Yeah. It's so off the wall, you know. I mean, it was uh it was very interesting. I mean, Brand 
Jack Nicholson's kind of a prick, but Brando was really a fabulous human being. I just enjoyed all the time I had with him because he just had hair, almost a Harrison kind of big aura, you know. Yeah, naturally speaking, and uh, and very unusual person. I mean, when I was staying with him, these kids would come over to the house to get him to repair their bicycles, and he had a little workshop, and he could do some electronics and fix it, fix their their Walkman, and I mean. He's just a very ordinary guy. Never saw The Godfather. Never saw the movie. Really? That's how detached he was from the industry. What did you not like about Jack Nicholson? Oh, he's just a prick, you know. Uh, I think he's a great actor. Yeah. He was very much overshadowed by Brando. Brando did an interview in which he said it was he loved watching Jack act. He said, because it's like watching a guy... With one finger, play a piano with one key. <laughs> <laughs> that that didn't bode well. And then we cast the girl, this hot girl, you know, for the the uh, love interest thing, and and uh, she was just this gorgeous girl. But they got to, and Nicholson's trying to be sort of interested in her, you know, sort of sort of get into the sort of mood for the movie. When they arrive in Montana, she announced that she was a lesbian and moved into a tent with her girlfriend. <laughs> so, so anyway, you had to adapt. Man, that was such a. Uh, it seems like such an unusual time there to be involved in the culture around here because I feel like this area hadn't really been discovered by broader America. No, it's then. true. You know, and I, I feel some of that's my fault. But, uh, you know, I was, I mean, I was broke. You know, I was trying to figure out how to survive here. And you can't, I couldn't su really survive writing literary fiction. I had a teaching gig at uh, Berkeley one, uh, one season and I thought, oh, I don't want to do this because I love teaching. But I didn't want to write at the end of a teaching day. And uh, so I had to make some choices. And so I moved over and got a place for $28 a month on South 8th Street in Livingston and just started scrambling. You know, I wrote for Sports Illustrated. I wrote novels. I wrote short stories. And then I wrote some movies, you know. Um, I heard an interview with you not long ago where you were talking about that you like to hunt quail. Yeah, I like to, any kind of bird hunting, yeah. And you had an observation about quail hunting where, and I, I might get this wrong, but I think this is basically what you'd said, is that when there's a covey of quail and you kill one of them, you don't have the guilt that you might not otherwise have because you think of the yeah. of the being as being the covey. Yeah. And it, it the covey lives on. Well, it's true. First of all, it's true. But yeah, but you, so the same thing could be true of any population if you look at it at a meta level. Well, well that's You could kill a human and be like, well, but humanity lives on. Yeah. Well, that's a great point, actually. And I'm, you're a little a jump ahead of me on that. <laughs> but I, I, think, I think you're right. You know, um, Yvonne Chouinard once said, he said, people are really, in the animal world, you know, when they talk about hunters, they're very worried about the individual animal and not particularly worried about the species. Yeah. And uh, that's key to what you are, you guys are doing, and I agree with that. However, every now and then I'll be out grouse hunting, and two grouse will get up like it's late November. I'll kill one of them, and the other one goes off for a long winter. And I sort of feel 
shitty. <laughs> oh, I can imagine, yeah. But for some reason, I mean, I, I, have, I have a covey of Huns that I've been shooting into for 30 years. They're always the same size. You know, it's always 12 to 16 birds. I'll kill three or four birds every year. Covey's always in the same place. It's always the same size if they're grasshoppers for the babies that year. Did you, you used to hunt big game a little bit. Yeah, I did. And, and not in, your interest in that faded. I don't know. I mean, I was getting to be a little bit of a trophy hunter, which was a sort of against my principles. Uh, but we ate a lot of game. I remember uh, when my son and I, I was a, for a while, was a single parent, and uh, we were eating a lot of game. And um, didn't have any money. And I said to said to him one time, oh, I had a movie sale or something happened. I had a bunch of money suddenly. And I said to him, I'm going to town to get some steaks. We're not going to eat this deer meat for a while. And so I went in and I got these beautiful ribeyes, you know, and he was out playing in the yard and I cooked up these ribeyes. And he came walking in the house. And he said, oh my God, what, what's stinking up the house? I said, it's these steaks. He said, oh God, throw them away. The whole house stinks. He ran around opening the windows to get this beef stink out of the house. <laughs> so that kind of was a watershed moment for me. I mean, it's just uh, that and the fact, the over-noticed fact that people don't seem to know where meat comes from. Yeah. And uh, I like how you say that's over-noticed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I remember one time uh, we were down in Florida and my wife, I like to, snook fish and my wife loves to eat snook you know and she said she was going to the movies in the little community center she said catch a snook tonight we'll have a snook for dinner so i went out and labored away and i hooked this big snook and i'm down on the dock and i'm getting ready to give him the wood shampoo and my wife's car lights come into the driveway and she gets out of the car and i said i got one i'm just going to bring him up to the house now and she said don't hurt him but if it had been a fillet, she'd have been happy. Yeah. <laughs> Did, when you say you became a trophy hunter for a while, what do you mean? Well, I you got, got like real, interested in trying to find a big like you, you a found big yourself mule deer wanting to find a big mule deer. I, yeah. And uh, did you find one? Yeah, a huge one. <laughs> he there was five of them. I killed the big one. It, it it looked like an elk lying out among the five pointers. I mean, he had an orange crate on his head, and uh, I knew I'd never kill a bigger one and also i questioned how good he was going to be to eat uh -huh. and um uh but i mean i look back on it i mean i really miss those days of really being obsessed you know getting up in the morning and thinking which way the wind is and how much snow there is and you know where i think they'll be that day or where i could stake out where they'll come out of the trees and i mean I, where that whole scenario is running in your head it's fun to be obsessed you know i mean i like being obsessed uh and i and i kind of miss that part of it and on the strictly the meat level i mean probably uh, uh last year's fawn would be the one to shoot mm. <laughs> you know if you wanted to want some meat there's not much of a quest involved there there's no there's the the sort of predatory adrenaline doesn't necessarily get engaged over that that sort of thing but probably one of the reasons i've drifted toward bird hunting so much is i really get obsessed with that i you know i've always i've had bird dogs my entire life and just watching each one's mind develop and how they get how they figure the game out and 
how we do this together. Um, uh, that that's a similar obsession. And you tra- you travel a little bit to hunt, right? Because I remember in, in an email you mentioned that you were down in Texas hunting quail. Yeah, I've got a, a friend who lives over by McAllister who had a little uh, quail camp down there. Um, a couple of trailers on on a on a lot in West Texas, and then we find leases or places we can go. Yeah. Um, I have a uh, I have a friend, Burt Jones. Do you remember Burt Jones, the quarterback for uh, for? Uh, Indianapolis, no a great player. You um, know him, Yanni? I don't really. Yeah, I know. Yeah, he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. Anyway, he's got a a, a quail lease out there in West Texas. Uh, West Texas is a great place to bird hunt because it's totally. First of all, there's a lot of habitat left in West Texas for these birds, uh, and it's completely dependent on weather. I mean, it'll go almost to zero, where you, you couldn't find a quail with a helicopter and a year later they're hitting you in the head you know just depending on the rain and the particular distribution of weeds and things like that um so anyway i'm gonna hunt with him him this year and then brokaw and i went to a couple of places uh uh in georgia and um north florida in fact my cousins were all here and we had a big quail dinner night before last so i brought a big lot of them back uh but I that whole quest thing that shared thing was like I, for forty years I competed on cutting horses and there's a little similar thing where you're trying to understand what that horse is figuring out and you're trying to cooperate in that quest you know and it's the same with bird dogs you know you see the, that moment where they're wondering wondering if they're kind of off track and they look up at you and they're a hundred yards out and you go you go like you know and the, the, that communication thing and then when boom when it works. You know, and they've got them, and you know they're out in front, and it's your job now. And they're kind of going to look back a little bit like this. And, I mean, it's very – the heat is, rises significantly. Yeah, yeah. What does it – real quick, what does it mean to compete on a cutting horse? Oh, that's a long story. But, I mean, if you don't you haven't seen a cutting or something, I mean, the rule book is 80 pages long. So uh, – but it's basically, uh, you know – Sorting cattle in a competitive situation, you know, with a very athletic, speedy, tough thing to figure out. You never get to the bottom of it. It's very tough. And yeah. sorting, just like they throw you in an arena with 100 and you have yeah. to just cut out the two yeah, and you, males? Yeah, right. You'd okay. have to see it. We'd have to have a, a video to I could show you what was going on, you know, what correctness and what horses are doing, what the riders are doing. Um, but, uh, the analogy to bird hunting is, is that it doesn't work unless you have a pretty profound and sort of emotional relationship with that horse or that dog. I mean, I've seen really good dog handlers, you know, would, if that dog got out 300 yards and you wanted to stop and turn and go someplace else, I, I know dog handlers go tap on the whistle and that dog will freeze. I mean, just chill and go someplace else. Whereas if you, you can blow the whistle all day long, that won't, dog won't even hear you. And all it is is a tap. But the, the communication is so intricate at that level that, uh, and you have to work at it all the time for it to, for it to happen. So um, that's kind of supplanted my uh, big game hunting thing. Uh, but I very, you know, I really value the impulse to hunt big game. I mean, we all talk about this all the time, but they need stakeholders. Um, 
Yeah. And uh, I, I had, I was fishing in the Bahamas with um, uh, Johnny Morris. You, you guys know who Johnny is? Yeah, Morris the founder is. of Bass Pro Shops. Yeah, so. he's got 200 million loyal customers. He's He just won the Audubon Award. Uh, very much more of a environmentally alert person than the Cabela's group were. But it's one, it's one and the same now. Yeah, but they, yeah, because right. purchase, yeah, and um, but uh, their data tells them uh, that the gun and hunting community is declining. And uh, I was talking to my friend and barber at Big Timber, and his son manages Cabela's in Missoula, and they're frustrated because they're not getting them the volume of weaponry. Um, that they used to get uh, before this changeover is because Johnny Morris knows the future really is fishing, not hunting. Yeah. Huh. Um, and, you know, I, we have a wonderful shop here in town, sporting goods store called The Sport. Have you all ever been in The Sport? No. I haven't. And, anyway, it's a real depot for gun sales and stuff like that. And until very recently, it was just, you know, all sporting things, you know, varmint rifles, big game rifles, and shotguns, and all that stuff. Well, it's just... The great presence of high, concealable weapons now and AK-47s. It's completely supplanted this sort of, not completely, they still carry a lot of stuff, but it's, it, I mean, it's a huge presence in that store in Big Timber. I mean. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know, I know there's a lot of uh, zealotry around the Second Amendment and a lot of controversy about that, but all these people who are sort of gun nuts, I'm sort of a gun nut, but all these people who are sort of gun nuts who are fanatical about uh, uh, our rights to have every kind of gun and have it in every place, churches, school, every place, by the way, except the legislature and the banks. Can't take guns there. You take them to kindergarten, but you can't take them to a bank. Yeah, I've seen warning signs <laughs> in entering sporting goods stores. Yeah. About. Yeah, you can't take them to the, <laughs> NRA, yeah. Can't take them to the NRA convention. Yeah, yeah, in Las Vegas. Yeah. So, but, but, but my point is not so much that, is that they're more interested in what often flies under the aegis of hunting weapons. Uh, they're more interested in protecting the rights to have as many of those as they want. And they're not very interested in protecting the quarry or the wildlife that these are supposedly uh, being sold to uh, exploit. So they're not, they're not, they're not, uh, they're not battlers for public land access. They're not battlers for, uh, well-being of wildlife or any of that they just want the guns and i don't get that a lot of people become pretty segmented when it comes to the things that they're giving advocacy for yeah you know like when someone's a crusader for something yeah they tend to fixate well that's 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 possible yeah they ought to notice that there's sort of boundaries with uh there i mean it's like, like the smart play there the yeah. smart play is to understand um right it's like the being smart the, play there is to understand and i think the people that were playing the real long game on that do understand that public participation in certain activities depends on viable resources right. and depends on access and they, and they understand that. But some people, um, you know, there's people like there's elements of the, of the gun community that they even have a derogatory term for people that focus too much on hunting or you become a FUD. They do? That exists? A FUD yeah. would be someone who views firearm ownership through the lens of hunting would be a FUD. F-U-D? Like, I guess, yeah, I'm gathering Elmer FUD. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Oh, 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 oh. 
Do you, have you found like in well, your? Well, you can't fix stupid. <laughs> have you found in your career? <laughs> this is kind of, there's probably a double-edged sword to your involvement throughout your life with hunting, the implicit explicit involvement with firearm ownership and fishing, where it's made up so much of what you write about. Yeah. And so much of your understanding of the world. Right. But then you, out of necessity and perhaps personal preference, you've worked with many people who would be regarded, you know, like people in Los Angeles or yeah. Hollywood, right. people in New York who would have an innate suspicion of those right. things. So on one hand, you're probably uh, penalized in some way because of the so, things yeah. you've been involved in. But on the other hand, you wouldn't be here if it weren't for those things right. because those are the things that make up yeah. your work. When I hear that, like in, in my line of work personally, when I hear that some media enterprise or whatever doesn't want to work with us because of the hunting thing yeah. or because of the gun thing, I'm always like, oh, what a bummer. But then I'm like, but hold on a minute. If it wasn't for those things, I wouldn't talk. I wouldn't have any reason to be in the conversation anyways. Yeah. Because this is all I've ever talked about. Yeah, right, right, right. How no. Have you ever felt that? Uh, have you ever felt that in a way that was painful to you? Well, you know, I, you know, I'm in the American Academy, and I go back there for those meetings. And one of my good friends is Joy Williams, and Joy Williams wrote the most eloquent anti-hunting book ever. She's the best anti-hunting writer out there. No, she's fantastically <laughs> good, and she just feels it very strongly. You know, yeah. I mean, I don't, uh, I don't quibble at all with the genuineness of her rage against the idea of killing animals, and the old, the old head of uh, the. Uh, uh, Humane Society once said, you know, why would you want to kill something that wished to live? You know, it's a big question. Yeah. How do you get around it? I mean, uh, you can't skip it, you know. Um, and I'm not sure you get by by saying an incremental portion of the meat I eat, I kill myself, you know. I mean, I mean I'm a big McDonald's guy. Was <laughs> oh, that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like junk food. <laughs> I like good food. I like junk food. But uh, um, so, the, but when I'm back in the bubble, you know, I know there are things that are just going to be warfare if we want to have to talk about it. I'm under contract to the New Yorker. I wouldn't send them a hunting story. I don't. I barely would send them a fishing story. You send them a lot of story with a lot of cattle ranchers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you listen. I'm aware of the of the. Uh, uh, the the contradictory nature of it. There's no doubt about it. You feel that they wouldn't? Uh, do you feel that they would not publish a story that had a protagonist or antagonist who was a hunter? Yeah, I I don't know, but huh. probably not. But I mean, one of the things that drives me, and one one reason I'm fairly com comfortable with the ranching culture, is that some pretty profound studies have indicated that when a ranch goes out of business for any reason. If it goes out of business for any reason, no matter what other trajectory it goes to, biodiversity drops sharply. Okay? So uh, even though, you know, I most of my friends after, at this point in my life are, are right-wing ranchers, you know, um, for reasons I I can never quite understand, but but, but my county <laughs> went my county went ninety three percent for Donald Trump. Uh -huh. They're do I don't want them to go out of business, you know, and also, uh, 
Also, I know that their reasons for voting and thinking the way they do are a lot more subtle than uh, are ascribed to them. Um, a lot of them I know had problems with Obama, not because he was black, but because he's an elitist and talked like a Harvard guy. Uh, they had real issues with his 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 uh, way of expressing himself. He reminded them of the kind of people that are trying to run them out of here. Uh-huh. Uh, they didn't care if he's black. It didn't mean anything to him. Yeah. Uh, I think there is a simplified way. I found that, you know, time and again, where there's a very, but people have it does. People on both sides do it, where yeah. you try to boil people's motivations down to something that you know is unfair. Yeah, but yeah. it's it helps with the rhetoric. Yeah, I just got a friend of mine just forwarded a, forwarded a, a really brilliant piece. Actually, it was in the Washington Post that Rahm Emanuel wrote. Rahm Fish is here. And it was the idea that the only way to beat Trump is the the best way to beat Trump is to not try to uh, out Trump him, uh, and that the idea that the squad is going to somehow or another distort the election is just craziness because moderates have always dominated presidential elections, and um, but it is tempting to fight fire with fire, you know. Uh, I mean, I find this age culturally and politically to be unbelievably obnoxious. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was just, I just came back from this tour, book tour in Europe and I mean, they wanted to know why we machine gun our kids and why we do all these awful things. And it used to be, you go to France, there's quite a little bit of hostility between Americans and French people, even among intellectuals and cultural elite, elites. It's not true anymore. They just feel sorry for us. Uh, they think that we are taking what was the greatest experiment in democracy in the history of the world and ruining it. And they can't figure out why we're doing that. They mean that because they, you think they mean that just because of the aesthetics, yeah. like the name calling and the, the, the divisiveness. Right. Yeah, the, no, the, like that aspect of American that, politics. That level of discourse of the kind of uh, wall building and the, and the, uh, a, a country that uh, built on the idea of free trade, wanting to launch all these tariffs. I mean, this doesn't make sense to them. It looks like we've flipped out. Mm-hmm. And knowing that uh, that approach is, has tremendous support here. Right? It's 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 kind of alarming. But if you if you live in a very conservative community, you know that that's just part of what people are. You know. You know, I, that's just part of what people are. It's not a, it's not as sweeping an indictment as it looks to, like it is. Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, 
Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day, and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Do you feel Do you feel politically, I mean, I know politically you probably feel out of place, but do you feel out of place being in a, I mean, being, you've been involved in ranching. Yeah. Uh, but, you, but you sit outside of ranchers in general. Uh, just being a writer is bad enough. I mean, that's... Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, I, I was, uh, I, I feel pretty comfortable. You know, I spent 10 years roping steers in the Northern Rodeo Association. Yeah, and, no, I know. It's... And, uh, you know, they think I'm, they just view my progressivism as just another quirk. You know, some guy's got a drinking problem. I've got a progressivism <laughs> problem. <laughs> what are the, cause there's a, there, there's a three, you sit on the, you're in the fly fishing hall of fame. Right. The Academy of Arts and Letters. Yeah. And then there's a there's a schizophrenic. Yeah, no, there's a but the, what's the ho- you're in some horse hall of fame. Yeah, the cutting horse hall of fame. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just saw this thing. Uh, I read this quote. It was just so great. Dostoevsky visited Charles Dickens, uh-huh. 
And uh, Charles Dickens said, well, I, I'm really two people. He said, he said, I'm the person who creates all, you know, uh, all these, these, uh, positive characters. I'm also the guy that creates Scoo Scrooge. And, uh, and he said, there's two, two of me that d does these two things. And Dostoevsky said, only two. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I, I read an interview with you where you were talking to, I think he's some kind of, he's like a literary reviewer. I can't remember his name, but like a, like a literary figure. Um, and you were talking about, a thing that you like, you you were explaining that a thing you liked about horses, and you think you liked about fishing, is they had ritualistic qualities to them. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, can you explain that a little bit? Uh, I think it's partly that, and it's some. I mean, I my my problem. My father used to accuse me of this is I'm just interest, interested in so many things. You know, that it's a problem. I could see that. Yeah, and and uh, but those are things that really concentrate me. You know, I mean, and pretty quickly too. I mean, this afternoon I'm going to string up a fly rod, and the minute I set foot in the water, river, all the kind of conflicts and sort of multiplicity of my brain life are going to go away. I'm just going to, I mean, it's, it's, I'm going to get focused. And and um, uh, part of the things that enables you to focus, you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time you go hunting or you go fishing. There, there is, there is a uh, there is ritualized behavior uh, that has a quasi-religious -dimen dimension to it. And, uh, you know, since I don't have any other kind of religion, I like, to, I like to access that thing, that pattern of doing things. It's the right way to do things. Yeah. And um, hunting's full of that. And, and so is fishing. Give an example of a of a of a activity that you would find. I mean, an, an activity within the activity, an activity within fishing, or an activity within hunting that would be the type of ritualistic behavior you're talking about. Mm, boy, let me think if I come up with that. Well, I'm not sure I can. I'd have to I'd have to brood on that for a while. When, what you're saying, I think, to, so that I understand correctly, it's not so much the rituals that man or humans have come up for these activities but right. more so the rituals that just come about of doing the activity well i think probably that i mean it's it, it, some of it is habit form there's some of the things you know that my father and my grandfather were hunters are right th ways to do things the right ways the right ways around guns and dogs and things that you're supposed to do how you're supposed to take care of things um uh and you really feel it when you're around people who haven't had that kind of approach to it they don't they don't have to inherit it genetically but they have to honor these kinds of practices about the way you, the way you do things and i guess that's ritualized no that's that's a funny observation or not funny but i do notice that i hadn't thought to put it in those words but when you're with someone i spend a lot of time around people who uh have began hunting later in life or yeah. began fishing later in life and it does they they have in their behavior or in the way they do things, you realize there's nothing really rote. Yeah, there's nothing that they do it because that's how they were shown to do it and always yeah. did it. Yeah, and I find too now that I'm a parent, um, I, I I oftentimes encounter other parents with young kids who, for whatever reason, 
are parenting with all new strategies yeah. that they learned or read about yeah. or heard about right. rather than sort of the activities that you would have seen the way your grandparents behaved mm-hmm. and there was a way your parents behaved and the expectations right. of children. And it, these things sort of march on, you know? Yeah. And then I'll meet people who parent totally outside of whatever inertia has gathered up. Right. Yeah, that's great. That's interesting. And they're like, oh, no, we're trying um, uh, uh, we're, we're trying a new type of parenting. Yeah. And it strikes me in the same way that with, and it, you see the same thing in, in certain, like, just tying a fishing hook on. Yeah. Like, there's the person that does it all the time. And there's a person that seems to be dabbling. Yeah, right. Like the dabbles in it, right? Right. Um, you- I, I just had a, th- a thought of a version of that. I have a, a good friend. I won't name him because he's so well known. But oh, uh, go ahead. Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he, you know, I've fished for steelhead for a long time, and there's a lot of stuff about fishing through a run. And if you catch a fish, you know, you need to go all the way back to the top of the run, let her, whoever else is the run fish on. Like and surfing, was, yeah. And I was I was in uh, Tierra del Fuego with this friend of mine, and we hit this really great run on the Sea Run River. And I said, "You go ahead and fish through it, and I'll fish in behind you and if you catch a fish." Blah blah blah. So he fished all the way down. We get to the bottom of the run, catches a nice fish, like a sixteen pound Sea Run brown trout, and he circles all the way back and he gets in front of me to do it again. And I remember fishing that when I was living and going to school. Steelhead fishing in Northern California. I mean, they'd have these lineups. You know, it was really strict. You know, everybody in the lineup was a phenomenal caster. They're all great fishermen. If you went down, caught a fish, and circled up and got in front of him, it'd be time for an obituary. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he just. I looked at. It, I thought, is that rude or is he stupid or, uh, you know, I could or, or greedy. I mean, I couldn't couldn't figure right, it out. It just doesn't it was so, know. I mean, I thought this is. Ins- I, I had the moment of being this sort of out of body experience. Am I with a lunatic? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I like reading your short stories a lot. Yeah. Um, if I had to pick one thing of the of the all the kinds of work you do from novels, right, short stories, nonfiction essays, you know, I like your short stories the most. Okay. Personally, I, I do too. But why are the characters? Um, why are your characters in your fiction so different and at wit's end and kind of disheveled in their personal lives? Then when you read you about you and your friends and your life, it's it's like a completely different worldview. Well, I'm suppressing the truth. <laughs> no. Well, I don't know, but I mean, I think that uh, especially short fiction depends on a sort of a crisis atmosphere. I mean, you has in a, a effective short story, a lot should be at stake. You know, it should not be the quotidian day to day lives of people. You know, unless unless it's a Ray Carver story. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. Um, so I. Th- I mean, uh, narrative, fictional narrative is kind of driven by conflict in a way. Um, and, you know, as Henry James said, uh, it only has one responsibility, and that is to be interesting. You know, and that's, it's not the same level of interest that you have in uh, nonfiction, you know, where it's fact-driven or information-driven or stuff like that. It's a very different kind of atmosphere. So it calls on different things. I think, than the sort of stuff you would describe in your life as a hunter or a fisherman or 
all those other things. Although those tr could be part of it. I, I'm reading this. Um, just got this book uh, called um, uh, "Fishing in Paradise." I've got a title, something like that. But it's about a guy who lived in Sweden during the period. To fish, he's a fishing fanatic, and it was during the period when the Swedish dream of a sort of utopian society—that's the title, "Fishing in Utopia." when the utopia dream in Scandinavia was still intact before the big waves of immigration, all the things that have changed that happened. And he's gone back as a fisherman, but he's really an observer of what has happened to this utopian fantasy of the Swedish people and how it's changing everything. So the idea, I find this a very appealing idea, the idea of, um, of, uh, uh, finding a way these things that we do impinge on other things that are less recreational, for example, uh, than what we're talking about, or less uh, focused, uh, solipsistically focused on the things we want to provide for ourselves as individualized, individualized characters known as the great hunter or the great fisherman or something like that. In other words, a little bit broader view of how these activities uh, illuminate other things. And so anyway, I just got this book and I've just started reading. It's a very interesting kind of, kind of way to do it. Uh, in your, your characters also have uh, an incredibly dim view of marriage. Or, <laughs> or you have a dim view of marriage. And it's funny because uh, the thing that makes it okay, I guess, yeah. is that you, the man is typically at, the, at fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. I mean, I like the idea of uh, of faulty men. You know, that kind of yeah. appeals to me. Uh, I don't know why anybody gets married anymore. I mean, that seems like a slightly uh, defunct institution. You I think do, so? Well, I mean, what what is it? I mean, it's sort of documentation for something you do anyway. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, and I have a checkered married history. I mean, I, my his, history is that. Uh, I've uh, been married three times, but I've now been married for 42 years to the same person. So it's kind of a little bit of an odd thing. And, and one of the marriages was for like eight months. So, um, what what goes on in an eight-month marriage? Lust, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, or an accident or rebounding or doing all those kinds of things. Uh, the background of growing up in an Irish Catholic household and what you're supposed to do, you know. I mean, I've never gotten married second time under the current uh, sort of cultural convictions. But on the other hand, I've been in this really happy marriage for more than half my life. And 42 years, that's a long time. And uh, so I've, I, I'm not, I just don't see why it needs that kind of imprimatur, you know, of officialness. Uh, not bad. I mean, if makes people feel more committed, you know, um, then they should do it. And I did it, you know. Um, but I don't think it has a lot of meaning anymore. And, it, you know, statistically, almost m most marriages end in divorce. So what does that say about it? Yeah. That in and of itself, what does that say about it? It's a non-enduring institution. No, I think it was, I feel it, that it's helpful. It, it It's helpful because it makes you take yourself seriously. Yeah. Oh, I see. That's what I felt. Yeah. I feel like all of a sudden it makes you take some part of yourself more seriously than you might otherwise. Well, that's a good reason to do it. And I feel like it also is like you're putting certain things to rest. Yeah. 
You know, I chasing, had a bar- chasing girls, right? Yeah, the time you spend. I remember a buddy of mine was talking about he got married, and the next day, he felt like he needed one of those old top hats from the nineteen fifties, <laughs> so he could like head out to work. Like yeah. he felt like he should be grabbing his briefcase and putting his hat on, right, and getting on to the business of life. Yeah. Now that he's married, and he said that was the first time he ever felt that way. Oh well, he like, needs, there was some other reason. He to needs go. counseling. Yeah, there was. He had this other was, reason to go work. Did he fall out of his high chair? What happened? <laughs> yeah, but yeah. He Guardian, how could why? You're, have you ever been married? No, I haven't. And you're 35. Yes. And you're beautiful. What's going wrong here? Because you don't believe in the institution. No, it's not that. It's uh, you know, I think for me, a lot of things just need to feel right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just being aware of. Well, you can't apply all these criteria. You have to no, shoot from not, the hip. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's not, that's the thing. I don't think you're ever. Corinne, if you're going to continue, let's put your uh, headset on. I gave you one. I think there are a couple of situations where I could have almost been at that place and then, you know, things fell apart. Um, Has anyone asked you to get married and you said no? No, no, that hasn't happened. Um, yeah, I don't, you know, hmm. I don't, I don't think that we're ever at an arrived at place. I really, you know, if I look back at my life past couple of years, the decade before, um, there's always been a core of myself that kind of knows, but a lot of other things may shift around. Do you wish you would ever get married? Is that Um, something you'd be in you look forward to? I, I want a family. I do. I do. I would like a family. Um, but I think that before that happens, I, I, I do want to feel that the person I'm with, um, is committed to teaming up with me right. in, in doing that. Um, Have you ever considered a starter hubby? A starter, <laughs> 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 a starter hubby. Um, <laughs> no, no, I'm not sure if I have. Um, I, I think, I think I have maybe some feelings similarly to what you have uh, around marriage as an institution. Right. And I think that, or I've come to a place now with the experiences that I've had that I think uh, to be in partnership with someone is a choice that you make every day. Yeah. Um, and that you, it is, you, you renew that every day for as long as the both of you do. No, that's, me, you, that, no, then you're wasting all kinds of time. Why? Because you, that's, that's do, I mean, part do you of feel the, like you, do you feel like you stay in something to it, like force yeah, yourself to part, be in it? Part of the beauty of it is this. Part of the beauty of it is, and not the whole thing. I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to like trivialize marriage, but like a th- nice thing about marriage is that you make a set of decisions. You have a lot of time to think about those decisions, right? There's a hundred ways to get out of it, and you add it all up in your head, and you decide that this is what I'll do. And then at that moment, you stop pretending that you didn't make that decision. It becomes like the thing that you did and the thing that you now do. And then you turn yourself to the other shit in life. And you don't wake up every day being like, am I really committed to this person? You just decide that that's, hmm. that that's mm-hmm. where you're at. And then that part of that question is gone. And all the energy you'd apply to that question, you apply to other stuff. And I don't just, think that most people go through that <clears throat> the, um the precursor that you described. They all do. They should. Yeah, I agree. Okay, I gotta tell I gotta tell you my approach to my very successful forty-one or forty-two year marriage. 
you can all learn from this. Please. Fall completely silent. I want to reverence silence. You ready? I was lying on the floor of a bar in Key West with a cocktail in my hand. And my soon-to-be wife walked by, and she had this heavy Alabama accent. And I heard her talking, and I said, raise my glass, and I said, will you marry me and take me to your southern mansion? And she said, well, I don't have a mar uh, mansion, but sure, I'll marry you. And we've been together for 42 years. Really? That's how much... That's uh, all it takes. That, that's how much forethought went into this. <laughs> <laughs> so, like I say, I've, <laughs> I've thought them through before. They failed. Uh, I never meant to move to Montana. Everything that ever happened to me had, was an accident. So this ratiocinative approach <laughs> right? it's is like, going to blow up like an exploding cigar. <laughs> right? It's like if you intellectually make a decision to be a certain way into the future, then what if a disconnect arises between what you decide intellectually you're going to be with who you organically feel you become based on your experiences day by day. Yeah. Well, I like to think, okay, let me put it this way. If I got out of it, I like to think that I would do it as carefully and with as much thought as I got into it. That's great. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. The, cre the key to the mm -hmm. whole thing is uh, comedy. I mean, uh, if you if you like to laugh, I do. My wife likes yep. to laugh. We laugh all day long at one thing or another. And when we fit, quit going to cuttings, we had people say to us, because we had little living quarters in our trailer, they said, we don't know how to go to these rodeos anymore because we could always hear the laughter out of your trailer at the first of daylight. And uh, so that's really, you know, because you have inevitably, I mean, I don't know how early on you are in your marriage, but they're full of conflict one way or another. Oh, hell yeah, yeah. man. All, all the time. Do you feel I like mean, kids um, were, a, were a burden or a stress on like, do, were you able to keep that level of laughter or was there a little bit of a low spot as, as you sort of had to do, deal well, with kids Well, it adds to the potential, it adds to the potential for conflict. So yeah. it, it tests your other resources, you know, I mean, because you see you feel differently about what they should do and how they, uh, um, it's, uh, you know, it's unusual cause my, I had children and my wife had children when we got married and they became a sort of amalgamated family and that worked out great. But Lori's daughter was like five years old. She's 50 now, but she was five years old when we first got together. And actually my stepdaughter is the one I'm the closest to, um, uh, so it's all so unpredictable. I mean, I've, if I've learned anything in life, is is that it's so unpredictable, and it's a great mistake to imagine that it is predictable, because then you start imposing this kind of template of what you imagine to be your control of over future events, which is non-existent. Um, it's not the same as analyzing the stock market. I mean, it's a it's, it's much. It's much, much more myriad in, in its, uh, but you just have to, you know, you have to, you have to be good on your feet. You know, you have to have a sense of humor and be really good on your feet. And you have to have a highly qualified ego. What do you mean by that? 
Well, you, you don't. You have to lose that part of yourself that operates out in the world where you really need to win a lot. Oh, yeah, you I know? got you. Um, and you have to have, for it to work over long term. You have to have a really highly developed. You have to train yourself in this. You have to have a highly developed sense of fairness. You just have to think about fairness all the time in those kinds of things. Have you given up on, or did you ever tally? wins and losses in marriage uh i'm i i do that do you yeah and i try them to quit but i do do it yeah i don't think i've done that you mean like other people's marriages no 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 no. i mean i'll be like well i gave in on something oh. that was important to me and i'm like okay never mind and i remember that and then i'm very aware of it the next time oh like your old one? Yeah, and I'll be like, you well, you know. You bank account. I'll be like, well, yeah, but <laughs> I, need, look at what I did. You need professional help. This yeah. Is, <laughs> it's not going to work for you. I'm like, I gave up on the, the one thing, <laughs> but, the, but so I feel like I should get this thing because you won the other one. Oh, I one. think you do do that, actually, <laughs> yeah. a little bit. Um, we'll make formal deals. It's hard, hard not to. We'll make formal deals to be like, I'll stop talking about this yeah. if, if I get this win. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll seriously not bring it back up. It's called negotiating. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, the one I hate is when you say, when you finally make a point, you're right about something. And the other person says, fine. <laughs> <laughs> I hate fine. Yeah. You want it like more I, of a like, you yeah. know what, you're right. It's like, I was told this woman who was in some kind of a relationship, I said, you know, when the guy tells you that you're amazing, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> so... Are you uh are you familiar with uh Jerry Mills and the idea he he keep popularized this idea that uh about how to describe southern literature? <laughs> oh, that he the said dead, like is the dead mule theory. Yeah, the dead mule theory. Yeah. And he's like, how do you tell like and he, yeah. that was like his defining and he wrote this very spirited essay oh, huh. about the test, the litmus test of southern literature right. it has a dead mule in it. Yeah. In um in reading your work I find that uh, there's uh, quite often there is our activities around irrigation always. Oh, there was a lot of that because someone's I, ir- like someone's irrigating, carrying irrigating equipment. I, I was the irrigator <laughs> and I hated it. Boy, it's, re- it's really something the degree to which uh, when you're describing like someone driving down a highway, a thing that they're likely to notice. Is some aspect of irrigation of some aspect of I've irrigation. I've never met anybody that likes that, John. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you nailed it. It's just the worst job. It is the worst job. In fact, about five years ago, I managed to lease the hayfields to somebody who liked to irrigate. I mean, if you have a ranch, <laughs> if you have a ranch, if you have a ranch, everybody wants the grass and nobody wants the irrigation, and. uh so you know if you're phase, if you're phasing out as I've been for probably ten years, you're always trying to find somebody who wants some component of what you've been doing. Oh, I'll take the grass, or you know, and uh, nobody wants to fix the fence. I mean, they have all these little rules. Get cowboys. I fix fence, but I don't build fence. Um, you know, I you know, uh, I like working cattle, but I don't want to irrigate. Yeah. Um, and we did a lot of that ourselves for so long, but the part that I really resented was the 
irrigation. I mean, we had a, one point flood irrigation. Huh? Flood irrigation. Flood, yeah. yeah. We had uh, we had a gated pipe eventually, which helped a little bit, but we ran a lot of cattle at one time. I had uh, a lot of land leased north of Roundup, and we uh, ran yearling steers out there. Oh, you were that heavy into running cattle that you were leasing pasture land? Yeah, I had 30,000 acres leased. Were you writing then, too? Not the- much, not much. Yeah, I was kind of. I mean, there's a t- it's very intense for a period of time, and then you ship, but then you get a lot of free time. And oh, so you like? I didn't know you really really threw down and became that. Like you were a rancher. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Well, I, you know, I mean, I remember I, I first made some money and I bought a place in uh, in uh, Paradise Valley. It wasn't very big, but we had we always kept a lot of roping steers around because we we're always rodeoing, and then we then we would lease some ground and, and I, I didn't really know what to do with a ranch. I mean, I was in my twenties. I'd never had that background and, and, uh, and had a hired man. And, uh, I knew this guy, Nevada rancher, old time Nevada rancher. He said, the main thing is to go to bed at eight o'clock, get up at four. And then whoever works for you, you'll feel guilty all day long. They'll do anything <laughs> you ask them to do. <laughs> <laughs> Then the guy used to live in this ranch would get up at four and go in the kitchen and turn the light on so the neighbors would think that he was at work. He'd go back to bed till about eight <laughs> thirty. <laughs> Did you enjoy doing uh being in the cattle business? Did I what? Did you enjoy being yeah, in the cattle business? You know, business? I had got I was infatuated with the whole thing because I had a girlfriend in high school who who's uh, f- uh was from originally from Wyoming and her dad gave me a summer jobs. So I started going to Wyoming when I was like sixteen years old. Um, tried to be a cowboy. Uh, so I wanted to, you know, I from that point on, anytime I was not actually in school, I was out here, and uh, I'm well over that, you know. But it was, I, I really enjoyed, really loved it, you know. I was really caught up in that, and uh, kept a lot of horses. Went to ropings between here and California, and really loved the culture. I still kind of like it. Where I really like it is where it really is intact, you know, down in West Texas is where it is. I mean, those uh, the real full-time cowboys down there, they'll die poor, and they have, but they have incredible skills, um, inherited skills, and great reverence for their heritage, you know, and it makes them indifferent to the fact that they'll never own anything. Uh, just what they've got. They've got a trailer, stock trailer, a couple of horses, a couple of saddles, four ropes, and they're great. And and they have a, a, a kind of a new era and the ranches down there really can't keep full-time help. It's not economical to do that. So once a year, they'll hire these guys. They come out, come out with the horse trailers, unload all their horses, gather all the ranch, doctor all the cattle, brand everybody, and they're gone. You get a bill. Uh, so that's kept them going for another burst. Yeah. So. I think one of the things that makes it that other writers who write about the West and who write about people who work the land, um, the reason they can't, that I don't think they'll ever be able to catch you is because every, you have to read your work and read it and read it and read it to find an unbelievable moment. Mm. I'm sensitive to this stuff. Where if I'm reading about someone, um, when I find that they do something or some part of their life or something they're doing at work feels phony, 
uh, it really it, it just puts me off. Mm-hmm. I was watching a show with my wife. She there, she was watching a show, and there was a guy who is supposedly a carpenter working mm-hmm. in this drama, and they had a carpenter in the home doing some carpentry work. And as the camera's on him, it's clear that <laughs> not only is he not a carpenter, but no one involved on the set. <laughs> That's great. The writer, like yeah. no one had any idea yeah. what this individual would be doing in a moment of him pretending to yeah. be a carpenter. Right. And it's that's like those glimpses are painful. Yeah. But in reading your stuff, there's one exception I'll tell you about later. In reading your stuff, um, no one ever does anything that's not just totally believable. Another person who's really good, I feel, is Cormac McCarthy, but it's so fan- fantastical. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and it becomes show-offy, where Cormac McCarthy likes to show you things he learned about in exhaustive research and integrate them in, and it's show-offy. Yeah. But your stuff about what people are working or what they're out doing or what business they're involved in or how they made money, how they lost money, what they did yesterday... Every time I read it, I'm like, yes. Oh, good. Well, that's great. That a is a compliment. I hope it stays true. Oh, it is like, and, it, and I, I always wonder, it's like part of the interest in wanting to meet you too, is I always wonder, be like, how does he know all that stuff? Mm. Where it, it's not made up. There's like yeah. the story is made up, but no, the parts of the story are all so perfect. That's great. Well, you know, I've always, one, one of the things I feel maybe separates what what I want to do or the people that I uh, admire want to do um, in writing is that uh, I always felt that your writing should come from the zeitgeist, you know, the life you lead. I mean, if you think of Fitzgerald or Faulkner or Hemingway, they're kind of writing out of their lives. Well, if I, re- I read LitHub all the time, you know, in the morning, and those people are saying, well, I'm researching something about, you know, uh, life in uh, in a uh, ISIS concentration camp. I've never been there. Or I remember this book. I got kind of in trouble over this book. It won the National Book Award. It was uh, called uh, Letter from Nick- Letters from Ecuador. It was this kind of modernist book. It was totally boring. And it was, I got into trouble because I did an interview and there were five finalists for the National Book Award, and they're all five avant-garde women living in New York City. And I said and I said to somebody in an interview with The New Yorker, I said, it's a big country. Didn't they find somebody who had any had any uh, any ability out there in the 50 states? It was just these five women in the same... Anyway, everybody blew up. It was a night, that son of a bitch, he needs to get... Yeah. Anyway, it was horrible. It lasted for a long time. It was a scandal. Because the book, there was a gender component to it. There was a gender component to it. And um, the uh, the woman who wrote the wrote the uh, wrote the award winning book, which nobody wants to read, it's unreadable. Uh, her name is um, I'll think of it now, but the name of the book is Letter from Ecuador, and she she said that she wrote this book, and a lot of it takes place in Ecuador. She's very proud of the fact that she'd never been there. Yeah, and uh, so we get kind of con- right now. Because I keep track of a lot of new writers. You know, I like reading up-and-coming writers. It persuades me that this game will last, you know, because there's so many good writers coming along. 90% of the really good young writers now are women. And 
like Otessa Mosfeg or one of my favorites. They're just some wonderful uh, uh, women writers. The reason is they're not as oppressed by political correctness as the men are. And they're very, very, they're very, I mean, they're just, they just lay about themselves with a broad sword. I mean, they do any, say anything they want to say. And as yeah. a result, it's quite a, it's kind of uh, invasive kind of, and it's really tense and full of interesting stuff. Whereas the men are so afraid of saying something wrong about people who are overweight or, uh, uh, you know, um, unattractive people. Or something. They, they, there's a kind of timidity about literary fiction by young men that the women don't have to deal with. And as a result, the men are not very interesting at this point in time. Yeah, you see it in comedy too. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, female comics cut loose. Absolutely. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's That's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know. They seem great to me. It's just an improvement on perfection. The new system made in the USA gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system 
has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like you still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any trucker van on the road in the USA from the last 20-plus years. Deck is a game-changer. There's no more, like, leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck, out of the way, and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. You mentioned earlier Key West. You met your wife in Key West? Yeah. You were... One of the areas, that, like, this kind of fixation we had, when I say we, like, my brothers and I and guys we hung out with, when we were in our, kind of in our 20s, we liked to fish a lot. Mm-hmm. And we became really aware of um, that we'd missed the boat on Key West. Oh, yeah. Like something had happened in the culture of fishing yep. and literature and whatnot. Right. Something had happened in Key West and it had died. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences in Key West and what brought you down there and the fishing and what you feel, um, what you feel died? Well, uh, yeah, I can a little bit. I mean, I went down there. It was a really, uh, it was a really um, virginal situation. Um, I, I, I went down there for for two reasons, three reasons. One was I was a sort of a bookish boy, and I was aware of its uh, literary history. Secondly, it was a rundown, cheap place to live. I mean, Duval Street, which is one shop after another, and it was boarded up when I moved down there. There was no if your parents came from visit, there was really no place to take them to dinner. You know, one place, the A and B Lobster House, it was terrible, and um, <laughs> I had the only skiff there. Yeah, I read that once. Yeah, I think it was in one of your essays. Yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah, at the time you had the only flat I, skiff in Key West. Right. No, what year was that? Sixty-eight, I think, sixty-nine, something like that. And um, so it was a kind of a. It was partly a sort of a hippie brigadoon. <laughs> You know what I mean? Because uh-huh. it was a cheap place to live. It felt like it wasn't in the United States. And, and it was, you know, half the people there were uh, spoke Spanish or they were conks and spoke, you know, spoke this kind of uh, Creole conk talk. And it was very interesting place. I mean, I was just loved it so much. It was a, such a great place to be. And then in addition to that, I had a friend who was an outstanding traditional guide who would who would give me a couple of his clients that he didn't want to fish uh, usually because they didn't know how to fish anyway that was uh, guiding those people gave me a minimal living and then i had a little contract with uh, sports illustrated i think i had to do six pieces a year for them between that and my two days a week deal i i had a a, a bare bones living and i could rent up rent a place cheaply and just live my life. And it was just a great place to be. And and I know a lot of people who were there then. I still know them. And we all agree that it was like the, it was like the uh, thing that the, the best part of our lives could never be replicated anywhere. It was just, there was nothing like it ever anywhere. It never will be again. Um, And that's a feeling that I don't have exclusively. I mean, everybody I know who was there. I just heard from. I had a I had a friend. Uh, he's kind of a an artist, 
and he was smuggling dope. Everybody's smuggling dope. It was, uh, you know, it was smuggling sailboats and acoustic guitars was sort of the basic equipment for life in Key West. And there were some very courageous uh, guys that were going to South America, you know, and bringing bring back loads of pot. And it was considered, um, you know, it wasn't considered a grave thing if you if you got caught. Yeah. Um, and I had two good friends that were bringing back a load of dope from Cartagena and the 110-foot uh, Coast Guard cutter pulled alongside of them. And, and uh, so they took a chainsaw out and they put a hole in the bottom of the boat and sank it and the Coast Guard boarded and put a pump on it, pumped it back out, and they and they <laughs> and they were two great guys. They were wonderful carpenters, so they went up to Eglin Air Force Base, which was sort of a minimum security prison. And they had to make roll top desks for the warden and all the politicians up there, and you know, said, you, you know, go back to what you were doing. Well, one of those guys now he just you know because now he's a felon, so he had to do other things. So he moved to the Bahamas. He's got this fantastic fishing lodge in the Bahamas. He's got the he's got two great restaurants and a, a bookstore and a and a tackle shop in the US that he runs from afar. You know, he said, Well if I'm a felon I gotta do the best I can. <laughs> and <laughs> there are a couple of guys like that who sort of remained named over in the Missouri. You know, they couldn't guide anymore because they were felons, so they just opened a big business and they have homes in Belize and they were forced by this limitation on, on their options to yeah. do something even more creative. But your main draw to Key West was the fishing, right? I mean, oh, yeah, fishing would have been? unbelievable fishing. I mean, you have the Gulf; it's the head of the Gulf Stream. So you have this phenomenal depth of species there. I mean, and the, you have the Gulf of Mexico, which is a whole different kind of fishery. And you have the Gulf Stream, and you have the Atlantic fishery. Um, it's very intricate, fascinating to try to figure out. We didn't have GPS. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have um, online tied information, uh, and you had to convert everything. Like you get a you you get a government tide book that get, Miami would be your lo- closest information. You had to convert everything and like what the delays are. Yeah, yeah. And the delays were very different from the Gulf side to the Atlantic side. It only might be a mile or two apart. It'd be completely different tides. A difference of hours. Hours. Oh, okay. Yeah. Huh. Uh. Throughout throughout your life of because you you've been around and you've explored so much. Do you have this? Do you have this ongoing feeling that that um, places are ending all the time? Well, yeah. Like, do you feel like the American West is like has ended? Well, it's very you know. It, I, no, not really. I mean, I, I probably that what I struggle with understanding in my fiction is to try to figure out how it's moving on. Because when I got to Key West in the sixties, there were people moving out because they thought it was ruined. When I left, left there in 78, we're quick going there in 78. Uh, I thought I was sure it was done. And I know all these people that have moved there since then just think it's been the greatest time yeah. in their lives. And, and, and that's going to happen here too. Well, it's, this is not going to be, uh, you know the imagery or the, or the vision we have of Montana is not the same as it once was. I mean, it was when I got here in the '60s that not much had changed. I mean, my neighbors were all old family ranchers. You know, they were uh, they were not polarized. You know, I was a hippie. I'd show long hair. You know, they, they would just why you get your hair long? Well, girls like it. You know, oh, well, that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, 
And, uh, you know, some of the, my rancher neighbors were born in the 1800s. Yeah. You know, a guy born in 1895 and 1968, still ranching. Um, then it got kind of polarized, us against them, insiders, outsiders, you know, natives, non-natives. That, got, that went on for a while. And we're kind of evolving out of that now because there's so many, the, the what do they call it? The attrition rate in Montana, the turnover rate is very, has been very high. I'm not sure it's as high as it used to be, but it was always very high. People are always arriving and departing. That was part of it. Do you feel as a writer that you're more interested in tracking the change than you are in lamenting or rooting yeah. for? Mm-hmm. Yep. Like you feel like you can just, st- you could almost stand back and. Uh, like passively observe as long as you hit it, hit the nail on the head. Well, I mean, I want to, there's a great book by Lewis Hyde that's just being reviewed right now about the art of forgetting, you know, you can't be, uh, you can't be chained by your, the past or your own past in many ways. Or you really don't have much to say about what's going on. I mean, one of the magic things about literature is that it, it really is the only thing that can kind of capture uh, the atmosphere of a given moment. Um, you can look at the movies of the 20s. You can read the tw- newspapers of the 1920s. You're never going to get the feeling for the 20s that you're going to get from reading The Great Gatsby. I mean, those that's the only thing that can really... Literature still is the only thing that can really capture what it was like to be there at that time. And it's no good to be there at that time lamenting some other era. Um well, that's hard to do. I mean, it's going by you like clay pigeons. <laughs> I mean, yeah. trying to catch up with it, just what you know, whatever it is, not easy. You don't write uh, from the past too much. Not much, no. Um, maybe I've kind of, you know, feel I've benefited from the ability to kind of start over. You know, I mean, I wasn't very interested in the living the life I kind of grew up with. I mean, I had a great life as a kid, you know, but I, I didn't want to stay in the Midwest, you know, and or stay in the Southern Midwest. There seemed to be much going on there. And also, I had a kind of a d- divided childhood because all my family lived in, on the, in the Massachusetts coast, you know, and I loved it out there. And my mother never wanted to leave there. So in the spring of the year, she'd just load us kids up and we'd load us up in the car and drive us back to my grandmother's falling down triple-decker Irish ghetto house in, in, in Fall River, Massachusetts. And I thought that was the greatest, you know. Go fish for striped bass with my cousins who just left. I've been fly fishing with my cousin Fred for 65 years. He just left. We're still doing it. You guys just fish and probably don't need to say a whole we lot. We just to fish each other. all the time. We go anywhere we can go. Yeah, yeah. Did you fish? Uh, I I heard mentioned that you were going to fish with Rachel Maddow. Do you do you fish and tell? Like uh, I was going to. Rachel's a mad fisherman. Woman. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I met her once. And I was surprised. I, I went to an event. It was her and Tucker Carlson on stage. They'd known each other and worked together and were yeah. friends. Their friends were there, and they were bound by um, an interest in fishing. And they got up yep. and they were on stage together talking about that. And I was very surprised that she was an angler. 
That's fascinating. Well, C- Tucker Carlson comes to the same place we go to. And anyway, uh, last year we we were going to go stripe fishing, to, stripe bass fishing together. I'm a big admirer of hers, and um, and then uh, NBC grounded her. Just said, you know, you can't go off for a few days. It's just it's, she said, unless we act. She wrote back. She said, unless we get real indictments, I can't go. <laughs> oh, I got you. <laughs> so, and uh, what's the story you have where? I can't remember the name of it right now. You have a story where two guys go hunting birds. Right. And and in the end, uh, one of them, he goes off over the hill and kills himself. Yeah. I hear that story. I hear so much about that story. That thing has really had an ongoing life. What's that story called? It's called, uh, there's two of those hunting stories. One's called Sportsman. This one's called uh, Flight. Yeah. Yeah. I had to read the end a handful of times to make sure that, in fact, he had gone off and shot himself. Right. Because yep. he gives his hunting partner, he, he, he kind of, in a very unceremonial way, yeah. explains a little bit about his dogs. Yeah. Take care of the dogs. Yeah. yeah. The care schedule. Yeah. When she goes into heat. Yeah. What she eats. Yeah. And then he wanders off over a hill which is a little bit misleading because they had seen a covey of birds go over yeah. the hill. Yeah. But he goes over the hill and there's a gunshot. Yeah. Well, uh, you know. And probably, I had to be like, hold on, what? You know? And I'm like, oh, no, he absolutely killed himself. Yeah. Did that come from it? Is that I from anything in your personal life? Not really. A couple of things kind of, you know, uh, I don't expect to head out in the rapture, you know. <laughs> but I always thought the closest thing to rapture that I know is to step into the, a cubby, cubby rise. There's really nothing like it. There's so much life, so many beating hearts, so many eyes, so much expectation. It all goes up like a big celestial corsage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought if I was going to, if I was going to sort of mort out by my own hand, that would be kind of a nice way to go. Now I heard one, my cousin just told me he had an old friend, uh, was terminally ill and was going to uh, going to end that day. Either knew that was his last day, or uh, or they were going to pull the the uh, pain med plugs or something. But he knew it was over. Yeah. And there's an old friend of his that lives in Rhode Island, and so he's very cheerful about it. He had a great life. He had a good run. Said, "Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine with this." Well, they said, "What do you want?" And he said, "Well, this was actually it's still in the winter." And he said, "Just build a big fire." Said I want my my lap rob robe, I want my bird dog, I want my cat. That's it. He just, off he went. He's fine with it. Were you friends with Richard Brodigan? Yeah, very yeah, very good friends. Tell a little bit about that. I mean, were you involved? I mean, were you? There's, there's kind of like this famous story about a bunch of guys that were hunting and he was supposed to show up. Yeah, and didn't show up. The thing that I remember the most was um, uh, I thought he was doing great. I talked him into giving up drinking for a period. And um, just transformative. I mean, physically changed. He had this big sort of projected belly, you know, and he's drinking all the time. and starting at daybreak practically. And then he spent this whole summer being this happy, thin guy to give readings around the neighborhood. But he was determined to resume drinking as soon as possible. 
especially he liked to go to Japan and stay drunk the whole time he was in Japan. That was his big deal. Huh. And I'm not sure. Maybe that's part of bonding culture or something in Japan. But um, so he came to my house uh, and he brought this black Japanese funerary, funerary urn. Are you Japanese or Chinese? Half Chinese. Have you what? Half Chinese. Half Chinese. So you don't you know what a funerary urn is? Uh, is I that mean, Japanese or Chinese? Or both? Uh, I believe that it's Japanese. Okay. And that's where the anyway, it's beautiful. Be. Yeah. Beautiful black ceramic thing. He brought it over to my house and he said, "I want you to hang on to this." And he said, "You'll someone will call you for it." Fine, Richard. So I put it there. I had his two fly rods, one of which I gave to Rip Torn. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And. Uh, not too long after that, I get a call, you know, from his daughter. I think it was from his daughter saying, you know, Richard's committed suicide. Will you send the urn? No shit. Yeah. He even told her where to find it. Yeah. Huh. You know why I asked you about that? We're driving up here, driving around looking for your house. Um, Yanni in here, uh, Yanni and I were talking about our friend Doug, who's out here with a couple buddies of his from Wisconsin. Right now, they're here in Montana. And they're just driving around fishing. And Giannis mentioned to me that part of their plan while they're driving around fishing is to read Trout Fishing in America. Oh, yeah. And I said to Giannis, well, you know, it doesn't really have anything to do with trout fishing. <laughs> and he said, they know. <laughs> oh, that's great. What a great reply. Hey, I got a... Uh, Richard's uh, daughter just sent me a new edition of it. I, I might be able to even see it. I saw it the other day. Um, of Trout Fishing in America with Billy Collins' introduction. Oh, okay. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Well, it was a magical book. I mean, whatever it was, I don't know what it was. I've read it two or three times. Yeah, it's just a great book. Yeah. One of the most requested books in the entire American library system. It's right up there with Huckleberry Finn or something. Huh. You know, there a uh, couple more questions for you. There's a thing that I've read where you've written it a couple times or said in interviews um, that fishing is the second most published yeah. subject after mathematics. Yeah. What does that mean though? I have no idea. There's way too much stuff about fishing out there. I hate to throw, throw another little wad out there. No, I thought about that when I came in and looked at your bookshelves and I remembered that I can't remember if you yeah. wrote it or said it in an interview, but you'd written that it was the second most yeah. published subject next to mathematics. I, I don't know why. It's just because uh, for the sort of outdoor activities, especially the ones with any kind of a predatorial component, it's the most contemplative. So it may, that may be what, what leads to it. I have a book that I tried to get. It was called Blood Knots. Um, it's an unbelievable book by an English writer. It's a good he, name for a fishing book. Yeah. He was, the, he was the dance critic of the Observer. Oh, really? <laughs> and he wrote this stunning book about fishing. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's just a great book. Uh, and I got all sorts of people to help promoted i had all these all these renowned people write blurbs and stuff for it It really didn't uh, it was published very poorly it didn't really go anywhere um but it was one of these books like the book about the swedish utopia vis-a-vis angling you know yeah uh and this guy grew up he comes from he, it starts out his dad was teaching him to fish and he 
He never could understand why his mother would get up in the morning and apply salves to his father's body, and then they'd get dressed and go fishing. And he couldn't understand what what that was about. Uh, and then as he learned to fish, he started quizzing his dad about these things. It turned out his dad was in a tank battle, and his tal- in the uh, Nazi tank uh, hit it with a an uh, anti-tank weapon of some kind. The thing burst into flame, and he was one of the first guys to get a total plastic surgery treatment oh. after the Second World War. Well, that kind of folds in as he's learning to fish. Then he has a he has a hero at school who's like one of those super male figures that young guys kind of identify with when they're in kids in school. He's a falconer. He's a great fisherman, and uh, uh, he followed him through life. They often fish together. In the in the hero guy joins the Royal Irish Constabulary in uh, in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. These guys all went to this ancient Catholic college in, in England. It was like 600-year-old college. They grew up in this kind of intense Catholic atmosphere. He joins the, the RUR, what it was called, and um, he's captured by the IRA. Uh, and they tortured him for two weeks. They brought fake priests in to do the last rites. And then they killed him. And then years afterwards, this guy fishing runs into some of those IRA guys. And they said, well, I can tell you this about your friend. He was a real soldier. He never broke. Oh, yeah. But this is all interwoven with a, with hardcore, serious fishing. Yeah. And and I began to think, you know, this is pretty seamless, you know. None of this would have happened if he hadn't been a fisherman, you know. So uh, what's the name? Harry... Uh, Oh, what did I? Uh, anyway, there's a wonderful writer who died long ago. Wrote, wrote about fishing. Uh, Starlight Angling Club was was one of his one of his books. They're so intermeshed with life, you know. And that's so maybe that's what the why there's so much fishing stuff out there. I don't know. Do you feel that if you ended the world now and let it start back over again, and the world gets going again, would um would so many writers that fish be fly fishermen? Or do you think you could let it start over again and it would wind up that so many writers that fish were spin fishermen? <laughs> what a question. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, the mentality of trying to catch a fish with a fly is so very different. I mean, with spin fishermen, basically attacking fish. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, I like that. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> You have to fly fishing is you kind of have to make a deal. You know, one English fly fishing writer said, "What do you do? What's this all about?" He said, "Well, you make a cast, and then you await results." (laughs) That's a that's a whole other thing. Then you know, you know what I'm saying. I mean, I like I like all I like any kind of fishing. You had you had a line in one of your fishing stories where you're talking about a fly. Presenting a fly to a fish, you'd said that it's like a highway exit that's labeled free beer. <laughs> right? And most motorists are just going to blow past. Right. Some motorists are going to think like, oh, that's a, a ruse. <laughs> and they're going to ambush me and kill me. <laughs> I didn't remember saying this. But, but some guys are just going to get off. For the free beer. Some guys are going to take, yeah. and those are the fish you catch. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I had a magic moment. I was last year. I was fishing on the New Fork of the Green in Wyoming. I was fishing with dry flies. The big, big dry flies. There's a lot of gray drakes on the water. And 
fire it out there. It's floating along. It's dancing along. We're all filled with hope. This big brown trout comes up. He goes, Roop. it stalls. He says, this is bullshit. And he swims away. As he swims away, it's all going downstream. He's developing doubts. <laughs> <laughs> I can see him go through this thing and he goes, I think I'll eat it. <laughs> so I recently had uh my we were at my mother's home and my mother lives in the house I was brought up in and my kid who's nine he looks under the pontoon boat she's got a pontoon boat moored up to her dock and he looks under the pontoon boat there's a big large mouth um I'm feeling it hovering in the <laughs> hovering in the shadows you know and he takes his beach saying and, and eventually gets a big, what we call like a horn nose chub. Those big ch- those chubs right. with the knob. They get the males get a knobby nose right. on them. And I free hook it on there for him. So there's no weight. It's just this chub. And I tell him to flick it up under there, you know. And the way that fish, just the total conviction with which that fish took that chub, like no hesitation or doubt like something like that though is a little bit magical to watch yeah that fish is like i'll take it yeah i buy it Uh, yeah (laughs) yeah and it's interesting because you know it's almost startling you know those fish that live around docks and stuff (laughs) in florida you know they've had so many people try to catch them i mean you can slide a live shrimp down their face like this they're not gonna eat let it fall uh one more for you i noticed on the way in there's turkeys hanging around here yeah are they living here year round or they migrating up and down uh, no they're a lot of a lot of them around here and they get very yeah they get very tame it's amazing they they hone in on the i imagine they're only making their living because they can winter up around animals livestock right i think that's part of it we had we had one living on rusty (laughs) living on the porch all winter long and he went off with his pack. Used to be when we would grain our horses out of a trough, you know, we'd take a bucket of grain, put it in this long wooden trough, and we'd I go out there, the horses would be lined up, and there'd be turkeys lined up between the horses. <laughs> <laughs> so Do you uh do you hunt the turkeys? Do I do I hunt turkeys? It wouldn't be very sporting here. I have gone turkey hunting, not I haven't been successful at it, but I've gone turkey hunting when I've been visiting my in laws in Alabama. Uh-huh. And that's very, that seems very interesting to me. But, I mean, this would be a case of going out and plugging one. I mean, yeah. these are Miriam's turkeys. They were established. Uh, they're a New Mexico turkey originally. They, they're like Huns. They just found a biota that they could move right into. Uh, you remember earlier I was praising you for just how believable everything in your in your work is? We're going to move on to something unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I just want to ask you about the one thing that I was like, uh-uh, that's not correct. What was it? You know your story, Canyon Ferry? Yeah. There's a guy that's taking like his, he's taking right. a kid out ice fishing on yeah. Canyon Ferry Lake. Yeah. But it's the winter time, and he has a coffee can full of crawlers. Oh. I really didn't like that. Yeah, they'd freeze, wouldn't they? It just, he wouldn't yeah. have that guy. Yeah. He wouldn't have, that guy wouldn't have that. He couldn't buy them like that. Yeah, that might be true. Yeah, I know. I feel like I if you ever do a revised version, you need to change. He needs to have a styrofoam container. Yeah, that he bought at Bob Ward's, a styrofoam container to insulate them from the cold. 
That was the only thing I've ever read. And this is a, this is this sounds like an insult, but it's a it's a compliment. <laughs> how many books have you written? I don't know, fifteen or something. I guess. And I how know. many how many short stories? I don't know, a lot. But I just collected them you in know, excess so of like you know dozens and dozens. Yeah. And you've written an entire book of essays about horses. Yeah, I know. Jeez, Multiple I fishing old. <laughs> yeah, I just want to point out that in yeah. all that, in that's all pretty good. That I'll take it if that's the worst. I'll... One time when yeah. I was like, no, oh, it was painful. Yeah. <laughs> but it just—I think that it it reveals how um, just the how well versed you've become in your life of just everything having to do with America. Yeah. No, I'm, you know, it's funny. Uh, I have a friend uh, who's, uh, who just married, he just married a, a girl from Prague. He's a guy that I fish and sail with a lot. And she has some kind of a uh, problem coming and going out of the country. I mean, her you know, you can't just get married now and automatically resolve this problem. So they're out of the country now. They're wandering around. They've been on the Croatian coast. They're doing stuff. Um, but I can tell how homesick he is for America. And he's a real ex-hippie. You know, he's not nostalgic about America. But I lived over. I lived in Ireland one time. I lived in Spain. I lived in Italy. But I was always trying to find what's going on in America. You know, and. Uh, and also, I I got sort of educated in the early idea that um, there was such a thing as American literature that wasn't the same as English literature. Mm -hmm. That was actually when I was going to college. That was a relatively new idea. You, you, that's you know wasn't always in the air, and uh, programs like American Studies, all those kinds of things. The whole idea that there is such a thing. We're not just a, a dis disparate imbalance. We are a kind of a people, uh, and. That's not been for sure uh, forever. And uh, so I'm, I'm kind of, now that I see it kind of imperiled, I'm just really interested in what it is, what this country is, what it is to be an American. Um, and when I just was overseas, I really noticed that. I was just like, what's going on? I got to get the Billings Gazette. I'm down in Brittany, you know, <laughs> I'm pawing my cell phone. What's going to happen to the Billings Gazette today? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of, uh, it's kind of um, uh, ignorant in a way to, to look at that. But I don't long to be an expatriate, as some people did at one time. Never did want to be one. And whenever I'm not here, I want to know what's going on. And I, and I would like to kind of claw my way to a sort of a template or an overview of what it act, what this country actually is, since it's changing so quickly. My um, wife had a job for a while where it would have been possible to go and take a position overseas. Mm -hmm. And when she brought this up to me, I told her that I was just too American to live somewhere else. Yeah, which I felt was. <laughs> Yeah, I thought I, I wouldn't be able to pull it off. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to pull it off either. And, and you know, you notice it if you you know uh, if you get translated a lot, because they really have a lot of lot, lot of uh, uh, problems with our our language. You know, what I mean, for example, they couldn't translate the title "Cloudburst," which is my collected stories. Yeah, the French couldn't translate that. There isn't a cloudburst. There isn't a term for that. What did they go with? I I can't remember. 
or what's what whatever they went with was it translated? Anybody here to? speak French? No. Mm. They went with Quand le ciel se déclinir. When I was in France, I said, is that a nice tale? Oh, yeah, it's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, is, there, uh, is there anything that you wish you'd gotten asked about that you didn't get asked about? Here today? Yeah, anything you want to wedge in no, there? No, but I, this has been really fun. I could do this for a long time. <laughs> Because it's you know it's kind of uh, intuitive you know I'm in, I'm enjoying this I guess I I was concerned that there would be uh, more of a template for what we were going to go toward that hasn't happened um, maybe I missed out what would that have been I think you fucked up I'm not oh. sure <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's what I like that approach to anything I mean that's the way uh, I I write you know something arrests my attention and I have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah, I had an image one time. We rented a house down in the Gulf Coast one year. I went down ahead of time. I didn't know anybody in this town. It was seemed very strange to me. The people seemed fairly strange. I had the rental house, you know, and the renter, the realtor, gave me the keys, and I went out to look at the Gulf of Mexico, and the the wind blew the door shut. Now I'm on the porch. I can't get back into the house. I don't know anybody. <laughs> Somebody drove me there. I mean, I felt this kind of <laughs> Deracinated panic, you know. I suddenly I became nobody on this windy porch. <laughs> so that's all I had to go on. I had just had that image. I said, "Well, wonder where this goes." And that life's kind of like that, I think. And that's where most fiction writers uh, uh, admit at some point in time, most of them, not all of them, that writing is really improvisatory. I mean, that's what. Uh, Cheever said it over and over again. In fact, my, my experience is if you really know where it's going, it's probably not going to be any good. You don't write the end first? No, no, hell no. But I revise a lot. I'm a, I'm a rewriter. You know, I do a lot of drafts. But I don't know where it's going. I mean, I want to be a reader. When I'm writing, I want to be a reader with a little bit of an advantage. Yeah, yeah. Which is... <laughs> when I used to do magazine stories which is totally different, but pieces of reporting right. or whatever, I would start with a place I wanted to get. Yeah. Like a really cool scene yeah. or something that was impactful and then picture writing the rest of the article in a way that would warrant such an impactful ending. Yeah. Did you actually follow through with that? Or? No, that's just how I would start. Yeah. I'd be like, if only I could write something so good yeah. that it could end with this and have it make sense. Yeah. I wrote a note down. I wrote this note of dialogue down. I'm going to try to do something with it eventually. And it just, just in quotes, it just said, you asshole, did you dictate this? <laughs> I don't know where that's going. <laughs> but it has energy, you know. <laughs> well, this is the perfect way to get out of the interview. Uh, stay tuned as you read the life's work of Tom McWayne and watch for that line. And you'll have a feeling of coming full circle back to this but uh seriously thank you for coming on and talking i appreciate with us. it i appreciate it and I, I i am kind of a fan of what you do keep it as loose as it as it has been oh and, be sh- and the only way you can be sure of that is when you realize how many enemies you've acquired <laughs> <laughs> there's a couple out there yeah i'm sure all right well thank you again appreciate it okay my pleasure 